Hello everyone, and welcome to 35mm Perspective, a podcast where we watch movies and tell you what we thought about them. My name is Jacob Coots, and I am joined today by my co-host, Grant Vavra. Grant, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm, I'm doing mostly well, Jacob, um, as well as you can be after seeing the movie that we, uh, that we saw this week. Uh, we'll get more into that later, though. Uh, today we have a show in three parts. We have our trailer section where we're going to be discussing some movie news, mostly here just some upcoming movies that we wanted to talk about. Then we'll have an industry talk section where you're going to break down Rotten Tomatoes, specifically, well, sort of specifically revolving around this movie or using it as an example, which will be a very interesting and an enlightening conversation, I think. And then we'll move into the feature presentation this week, which is going to be Midsummer or Midsummer. I'm not really sure how you're supposed to say that. I don't think they are either. Yeah, so uh, got a lot to talk about this week. So without too much pomp and circumstance, let's just go ahead and move on into it. All right, Jacob, not a whole lot to talk about this week for trailers. I mean, there's a lot coming out and it's hard to keep up with so i guess really what it is is we narrowed it down to uh three that we wanted to talk about and one that i wanted to talk about is knives out because you know that movie clue wasn't interesting enough Uh (laughs) um it's a black comedy mystery slash thriller where daniel craig is a serious but also comedic character kind of like sherlock holmes meets detective clouseau from the pink panther (laughs) with james spawn style camera work yeah, no kidding. I mean, they they really play up the fact that he was James. I feel like in every movie that he's in now, they play up the fact that he he is slash was James Bond. Um, <laughs> but so Knives Out, it's a it's a film about a crime novelist who invites his family over to his like exorbitant mansion, a, a rich crime novelist I should mention, who invites his family over to his exorbitant mansion for his 85th birthday, only for them to find him dead. And when Detective Benoit Blanc arrives, who is Daniel Craig. They find that they are all suspects in his murder. And uh, again, it, it looks very funny. Um, there's a star that cast, Jamie Lee Curtis, delivers probably the best line of the trailer. Uh, if you haven't seen it yet, go check out the trailer. It's directed by Ryan Johnson, who directed The Last Jedi, if you're not aware. So you already know it's going to be divisive. Yes. <laughs> um, I think it looks like a lot of fun. Yeah, it looks like it's going to be a fun movie. And just due to the sheer recency of it, though, seeing Chris Evans there, I was like, hello, Marvel. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. It's funny because I've seen he's just swearing up a storm in the trailer and everyone's like, Captain America can't say that. He fights for, you know, he fights for good and and for everything that's prim and proper. (laughs) He's worthy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) I don't know. It it looks uh, fun. And I think actually this is a trailer that does trailers very well where it got me really interested in the movie it had a it did a pretty good job of sort of explaining like here's what the plot's going to be but long term it didn't really give too much away i felt like i mean there were definitely some jokes in there and it's probably some of the funnier lines in the movie but it didn't give away a lot of the plot like 
has become a tendency with recent trailers. And I think that's something Ryan Johnson does very well is trailers. I mean, Looper and The Last Jedi were both uh, very uh, intriguing trailers, and they ended up with mixed results. So hopefully this one breaks that trend. Good trailer. Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully he hits the mark this time. And I think I get the feeling that we'll probably be talking about this in early December because Knives Out comes out November 27th of this year. Uh, The other one that is in a similar boat, another black comedy that uh, I think we both wanted to talk about uh, is Ready or Not. And this was a movie that we had, (laughs) excuse me, this is a movie that we had both seen trailers for and we couldn't remember the name of the movie. And then you texted me Ready or Not. You, You literally texted me, oh, the movie I was thinking of was Ready or Not when I was in the theater seeing Midsummer, and the trailer for Ready or Not was about to come on. (laughs) I feel like every year there's at least one movie like this. Again, a black comedy with some sort of game that isn't actually a game, and someone has to die for some nondescript ritual, but they have to die, and if they don't, something terrible will happen to this family or this group of friends or this town or this group of people or the world kind of thing. I mean, I I like to call more movies like this gorer movies because... Really, they're not, I mean, Saw sort of falls into this category, too, where it's not like your traditional horror movie. It's just a lot of obscene amounts of blood and people getting their bodies ripped in half and things like that, which, if that's what you're looking for, I think that, again, that this will suit the bill just fine. Yeah, it's a blood and jump scares is the the tune of these types of movies. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, there there's a shot in the trailer where it's you know it's the end of their wedding night um and she's beating somebody in his family's head in with a shoe or a bat or something in a ripped and blood-soaked wedding dress which i was looking at that and i'm like i feel like i have seen almost this exact shot before (laughs) it's sort of a movie built on tropes so (laughs) it'll be interesting to see if it comes into its own at all yeah, and, and to that end, I think that that can be good as long as it realizes kind of what it is. If it knows it's... Like, there's a certain type of movie that kind of has to be self-aware, and I think this is one of them where it recognizes that it's built on horror movie tropes, and if it leans into them like as humor, I think it'll be good. So I think this will be a really... Maybe not a good movie, but a fun movie, as long as it doesn't try and take itself too seriously. I agree. If it takes sort of the trend of, you know, it obviously can't go this far, but Cabin in the Woods type movie where it plays off all these tropes. Fun movie. It won't win any awards, but uh, it will be a entertaining watch. And I will definitely be seeing that when it comes out on August 21st, 2019. The last movie we wanted to talk about was The Current War, which... It, Wait, which... What, what's, like, The Current War that's happening right now? Well, this... It's The Current War about an old war, and this movie about The Current War was released a couple years ago, so it's... <laughs> so it's a current movie... It's a current old movie about an old current war that's not actually a war. One, did, did I get that right? 100%. That is the synopsis of this film, <laughs> as far as I could tell. It originally uh, premiered at the 2017 Toronto Film Festival, which was interesting because when I started looking up information on this film, 
it already had a Rotten Tomatoes score and an IMDb score, and I was just really puzzled. I was, it's like, why does this trailer coming out in 2019 <laughs> have all this 2017 stuff? And you know, usually film festival movies premiere earlier, but it was two years seemed like some time. Apparently, it got shelved and then sold off soon after, uh, due to the Harvey Weinstein allegations because it was owned by his company. So I mean. That explains the reason for this current old war about the old current war. <laughs> and now it, it's owned by the Lantern Company. Uh, so I I believe that's the successor to his old company. Yeah, to the Weinstein Company. And, and so what this does is it follows the, the quote-unquote war uh, to determine what kind of electricity would be uh, disseminated to the modern world. So it has Thomas Edison and... Uh, Nicholas Tesla. It's based on a true story. I don't know how true because I didn't want to uh, spoil it for myself. Yeah, how, how much creative liberty they took with this true story. True, sensationalized story about the... Right. So many, so many, juxt- so much juxtaposition is happening with this movie right now. But I think the thing I thought most watching this trailer was, once again, hello, Marvel. They just own all the famous people, so whenever they're in another movie, it's hard to think of them as someone other than that character. Yeah, it's it's weird to see Benedict Cumberbatch not as either Sherlock or Doctor Strange, and it's certainly weird to see Tom Holland not as as Spider-Man. I just, it seemed like they tried to cast him as an adult, and that's just the most unsettling <laughs> thing. I've ever seen him with sideburns. He, he's got to be in the. He's in his mid twenties, but he seriously yeah, looks. Yeah, I think he's like twenty three. He looks like he's sixteen, and I, yeah. to just have him be this old. And, and I always forget how British he is. He's so British. <laughs> uh, so it was. I think that'll be the hardest thing for me to to digest watching that movie. Is is Tom Holland. For sure, but we'll see how well you're able to digest it after it comes out. Well, not comes out, after it premieres worldwide, I guess, on October 4th of this year. All right, before we get into our main topic this week, which is once again the movie Midsummer, we're going to take a quick break, and then when we return, we'll be in our industry talk segment where you are going to break down Rotten Tomatoes for us. So don't go anywhere. All right, Jacob, so now you're going to lead me through Rotten Tomatoes and explain what all of the numbers mean. So the numbers, Jacob, what do they mean? Yeah, well, the first thing is you shouldn't eat those Rotten Tomatoes because they're bad for you. (laughs) Boo! Boo! (laughs) So Rotten Tomatoes, it's something a lot of people have heard about in their lifetime they've either referenced the website or heard something about this rotten tomatoes score but so few people understand what that score means and what goes into it and the controversy behind those scores so it's going to be a fun little segment here i'm going to start off by giving just a little bit of history about rotten tomatoes to give context to where it is today because uh, it started off as this really small independent project and now it's this like super review aggregator and it's just a fascinating little story 
So yeah, you're, you're going to kind of be the outlet for the audience. If you have any questions, Grant, I'm sure they do. So just go ahead and ask those away. Sounds good. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm sure that a lot of our listeners are probably just as confused as I am. Otherwise, why would they be listening to us review movies when they could just go to probably the biggest score, critical score aggregator for films online? Don't give them ideas. Anyway, so Rotten Tomatoes started in 1998 by three college students uh, from a California school, which sounds familiar because it's a lot like Metacritic, except this school was... Uh, University of California, San Bernardino. So a little bit smaller than USC. Uh, still not still not familiar. Neither of those schools. Don't, don't ring any bells. No idea. <laughs> now it's owned by Fandango, but it's uh, transferred a few hands over the years. The most interesting part about it being owned by Fandango is they're owned by Comcast, Comcast NBC, and Warner Brothers. And I think that's most of where the controversy lies or at least lied with Rotten Tomatoes is because Warner Brothers is a major film publisher and if you've watched any movie trailer in the last couple of years you'll notice that DC films aren't doing so hot compared to Marvel films that's one way of putting it (laughs) and Justice League was a movie that didn't really look good to begin with and got a whole lot worse when you actually watched it with your eyes. But the the week it released, they delayed the unveiling of the critic scores until it was, they call it the make or to break it show. Uh, it's the opening mm-hmm. night um, viewing party. And so usually the scores are released well in advance for that, so people have time to decide to buy tickets or not, but they didn't do that for Justice League. They released it on that Thursday night, and that caused a few people to turn their heads a little bit, wondering what's going on. You know, Warner Brothers is a party in this now, and uh, there wasn't much comment on that, but it didn't really seem too nefarious. I mean, they still released it that night, but especially for persons who are opponents of Rotten Tomatoes, this caused kind of an entry point. Because a lot of people don't like Rotten Tomatoes if they're movie publishers, movie directors, and that's because of something called the Rotten Tomatoes effect. Yeah, I think I've heard of this before. This is an idea where especially young people tend to be influenced by whatever sort of score or reviews they read on Rotten Tomatoes. So if a Rotten Tomatoes score is low from critics and especially from audiences too, and somebody reads that, they're like, oh, I'm not going to go see this movie. It got Rotten Tomatoes reviewed it horribly. Why would I ever spend money on this movie? Am, am I remembering that right? Pretty much, yeah. So it's this researched effect where the lower score is, the less likely people, especially young people, are to watch that movie. And the higher it is, the more likely it is to beat the projections for opening weekend at the box office. So a couple of movie Again, producers, directors are upset with Rotten Tomatoes because they'll get a low score on Rotten Tomatoes and people won't watch their movie and they'll go under projections, especially for that big opening weekend. And the response usually to that is, make a good movie and you won't have that problem. <laughs> I mean, that seems that seems perfectly fair. 
Yeah, it's, I mean, people, especially nowadays, like to vet their purchases. You're investing time to go to the movie theater. We don't have as much of that anymore. You're investing money. And if you buy concessions, you're taking out a small loan. So if you're going to go watch something at the cinema, it should be at least a decent movie. And, and that's the rationale. So I don't really see much hate for these review aggregators because they're pulling from a bunch of different reliable sources. And generally, if Rotten Tomatoes has a bad score, that means a lot of critics are giving bad scores. So they just don't like the movie <laughs> review industry as a whole. And as we're about to learn, it's not that hard to get a good score on Rotten Tomatoes, so it's not even that high of a bar to reach, per se. Now, the bulk of this is, how is that score computed? That score that we look at, you know, what what goes into making that? And it's not nearly as intuitive as you would think. <laughs> you, you see, a, for instance, we'll use Hereditary for an example. It got an 89% with critics and a 65% with the audience. And so most people might take that as, oh, this movie's an 8.9 out of 10 with critics or 6.5 out of 10 with the audience. I mean, that stands to reason. Especially when you see things like Metacritic, which try to take this raw average, not even this weighted average of movie reviews. And so you think that would kind of transfer, but almost always is the case where Rotten Tomatoes scores are higher than their Metacritic counterparts because it's not this average of movie reviews. It's based on percentages of, of critics saying a movie's better than it is bad. And we'll get into that in a second on, on what better than bad means. Yeah, because that sounds fairly arbitrary. It is arbitrary, and it gets even more so when the Rotten Tomatoes staff assigns scores themselves assigns uh, fresh or rotten reviews and how does how does that work i mean don't critics give a review yes they at least give the review initially and if they upload their review to the website then they can mark it as fresh or rotten there's no real arguing with their opinion of fresh or rotten so the problem lies in that being What's fresh to one reviewer isn't fresh to another. So I've seen reviews that were a 2 out of 4 marked as fresh, but a 3 out of 5 was marked as rotten. And that mathematically doesn't add up, but it's, it's based on this opinion from the reviewer. And so what Rotten Tomatoes does is it takes this aggregation, so basically a, a percentage of the fresh to rotten ratio, and that's the score. So for Hereditary, this 89% means that critics thought this movie was at least pretty good. 89% of critics thought this movie was at least good enough to mark as fresh, which generally falls in the ballpark of a 7 out of 10. And that's usually the basis for what happens when the staff has to pull a review from the internet. So they scrape reviews from other sources uh, there's a lot of review sites out there. They want as many as they possibly can on Rotten Tomatoes. So it's a little bit less selective than a, a site like Metacritic. Interesting. So you were saying that the percentage is more based upon people thinking the movie is fresh, which means that it's better than it is bad. So theoretically, and not to say that this does happen, but theoretically there could be a movie that is rated as 100% fresh, but if you go and looked at a raw number score... It had like a 7 out of 10, just because all the critics said if they adhered to Rotten Tomatoes' ideas or guidelines, they're saying, 
yeah, it's a 7 out of 10, which I guess is better than it was bad, so sure, it's fresh. And then everybody says it's fresh. And so then it's like, oh yeah, perfect. All these critics thought it was a fresh movie. Yeah, so you see, uh, and, and it's not as uncommon it, and uncommon as you might expect to see a movie in the 90s actually have a, a weighted average among the same reviewers with a even as low as like a 70 or even in the 60s. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's so it's more of a general sense of a film rather than it's it's raw average. So you can kind of see how it might be hard to get a bad score, at least a really bad score on Rotten Tomatoes. Because when you look at these percentages, a movie if it has above a 60% is fresh. And below 60% would be considered a rotten. They assign an overall fresh or rotten score to a movie based on this percentage of this percentage they get. That's crazy. And I have to imagine it gets even more confusing once you add in audience reviews and scores, right? Yeah, so audience reviews aren't calculated in the same way. So you see for critics, they have their own metric. They they have, you know, they can use A, B, C, D, E. FG, whatever they want. They can use 1 to 4, 1 to 10. All that matters is, is the movie fresh or rotten? And sometimes it's a little bit odd, especially if the staff has to assign a fresh or rotten score. But usually you can tell. I, th- I, th- I believe the threshold is once previously set by the critic or a 7 out of 10 or above if they're pulling it themselves and there's no no basis to go off of they'll assume a seven is fresh which is fair enough to me i think yeah it seems it seems fair if a mild bit arbitrary arbitrary is the name of this game for the audience it's the same percentage break off so 60 percent or more would be fresh and below 60 would be rotten but they only are allowed to give scores out of five. It's a little bit more standardized for users for a couple of reasons. And for a review to be considered as fresh for the audience, it has to be 3.5 stars or above. So they can't manually mark a review as fresh or rotten. Interesting. What gets more interesting for the audience is it just got a whole lot harder to review a movie because now accounts need to be verified so ticket purchases confirmed right now through fandango and then later in the year through theater chains like amc there's deals in progress to get those ticket stubs to count too but this restriction was imposed because of kind of what we talked about last week with metacritic review bombing So a lot of people were making fake accounts, and usually review bombing is a negative thing, so it's usually just people assigning zeros. Sometimes it's people assigning tens with fake accounts. Either they saw the movie once and they have ten accounts, or they haven't seen the movie at all, and they're just there to cause havoc, more or less. What if they have ten accounts and review it ten times, though? If they've watched it, I think it's a one ticket per review, so... They can buy 10 tickets, and then they can review it 10 times. But, for instance, if it was Midsommar, I don't think they should watch that movie 10 times. That is a lot to digest. So, for instance, too, Midsommar got an 82% with critics and a 61% with audiences. And that's quite a big discrepancy there. You could see that 20% gap 
uh, in this fresh or rotten distinction. It's considered fresh by both standards, uh, but there's definitely a noticeable difference there, and that's something we'll talk about a little bit later on in the review segment of our podcast today. But more or less, this Rotten Tomatoes thing, it's its not a perfect metric by any means, and it's not necessarily a metric of, of strict quality, but it tends to be better than it is bad. <laughs> All right, well, that makes some sense. Yeah, it makes some sense. I, I tend to rely on Rotten Tomatoes more than I do Metacritic, just because, you know, when a critic assigns a review score in the first place, it's arbitrary. So what this is, is just trying to see, do critics like this movie more than they don't like it? So you're almost dichotomizing this review in some ways. But by doing so, you you take away a lot of the importance between a 7 or 7.5 or 7.7, because there's really no true way to argue why it got a 7.5 over a 7. It's just this feeling you get, right? Right. Um, so, yeah, that's that's why I tend to, to rely on a tool like Rotten Tomatoes, just because I'm more interested in seeing what was the general general flavor that the audience got, that the critics got, and the scores are always right next to each other. So it's just a very digestible website. Uh, and, and as long as you don't go in thinking that, you know, this movie got a 90%, so it must be nearly perfect. I think you're going to vet your purchases a little bit better. Well, that's good to know. I mean, and that, that makes a lot of sense. So, again, you want to hit us with those numbers one more time for Midsummer, just so everybody knows what we're about to delve into before we get there? Yeah, so those numbers for Midsummer were an 82% for the critics, a 61% from the audience, and for reference sake, if you're curious what it got on Metacritic, uh, to see that difference, it would be a 72 from critics and a 6.2 from the audience. So that audience score was almost perfect, actually. But the critics was slightly different, and soon you're going to hear from two more critics, albeit armchair critics. Um, so when we come back, we'll be talking about our feature presentation, Midsummer. so stick around. So Grant, now that we're all Rotten Tomatoes experts, I think it's time to move into our feature presentation, which this week, as we've mentioned, is Midsommar. It's a movie I've been very excited to review because there's just so much to break down. Oh yeah, there's a lot to unpack. A lot to unpack, but before we do that, we're going to give you a spoiler-free segment and uh, talk to you a little bit about the director and the leads of the film, just so you have some context, and if we use their real names, you won't be so confused. This movie, as you may have heard, was directed by Ari Aster. This is his first film since Hereditary, which was generally well-received, especially by critics and film festival moviegoers. In this movie, the leads were Florence Pugh, who acted as Danny, Will Poulter, who was Mark, Jack Rayner, who was Christian, and fun fact, almost Han Solo in the Solo Star Wars movie. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, and I think it would have made that movie even worse. So I'm, <laughs> I'm maybe <laughs> glad 
Uh, we had William Jackson Harper acting as Josh, and then Wilhelm, Wilhelm Blomgren as Pell. I think it was Pell. Yeah. Pele, maybe? Pele. Pele? So, something like that. I don't remember. They, I feel like they only used his name about three times. Yeah. It's something Swedish. Ominously Swedish. Ominously Swedish. <laughs> should be a good band name. That's exactly what I was thinking. Ominously <laughs> Swedish should be a pretty good band name. <laughs> Catch our new band uh, coming out in a couple weeks. I think as far as spoiler-free reviews go, uh, I first want to just talk about Ari Aster as a film director in general. He's a really interesting guy. Just reading a couple reviews from him and seeing his work on screen, I'd be interested to meet this guy just to see what's going on in that head of his. He doesn't want to be labeled as a horror director. I think these were the only two horror scripts he had written uh, and now he's moving on to other work. But I think that shows in how his movies are classified even, especially for Midsommar. There was this weird discrepancy. Grant and I were talking about mm-hmm. what the movie was beforehand, and on my AMC app it said it was a horror film. And then, uh, Yeah, and then I looked on Movie Phone, and it said, I think it said like maybe even action thriller, and so I, neither of us necessarily knew what to expect going in and and speaking to Ari Aster like you said and him being not necessarily wanting to be a horror film director I think that goes along with something that he said about this movie which he said that this movie uh is a breakup movie dressed in the clothes of a folk horror film which if like he wrote this in the midst of his breakup I guess since he excuse me since he not only uh directed the film but also wrote it and given the content of the movie, I can maybe understand why he was broken up with. <laughs> I mean, I don't disagree with that point in the slightest. Like I said, such a strange guy. I do respect him for one thing, though, and and it was after Hereditary. He had a couple of large movie studios come to him and ask him to direct for them, but he, he said no and decided to stick with A24, which I think is a good thing because they're a smaller film producer and, yeah. and definitely could use some more representation in the film industry. Yeah, and if if he had gone to... I mean, I think A24 approached him about this film is my understanding, but if he had decided to write this and try to go to any of the major studios, you know, Warner Brothers, Universal, Columbia, Sony, whatever this movie probably never would have gotten made or at least not in the way that he was imagining. I feel like A24 probably gave him a lot of creative liberty in what he was allowed to do. And it certainly would not have been made the same way if it had been with a more uh, mainstream production house. Yeah, it allowed him to have that kind of signature artsy design that he likes to go for, evident throughout this movie. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, the other thing that I give him a lot of credit for is that is uh, the camera work and direction. I mean, I don't know how much work he had with um, with the director of photography, if, if he did everything there. But the, uh, the shots, some of the shots were incredible. The camera work of winter in Sweden, I assume, which is right at the beginning of the film, is very... It's, it's very interesting. It's very well done. It looks like it could be in planet Earth or something, but instead it's in this bizarre psychological thriller horror weird movie (laughs) um (laughs) 
But I mean, there's a number of shots throughout that looking at how the shots, the composition of the shot, it's incredibly well done. And I mean, it breaks, it, it either adheres incredibly well to or breaks a lot of the rules from film school, which having both of those in a film is a very interesting dichotomy of done right. And I think, again, the visual storytelling in this movie is very good. There, I, I don't like to generally bring other people's reviews in, but there, there was this one review um, by Nick Johnston from uh, Vanyaland that stood out to me, which said, Midsummer again makes a case for Aster as a brilliant craftsman with skill nearly unparalleled in his field, held at arm's length from meeting by his hollowness as a storyteller and maker of meaningful art. And, and that really stood out to me because, again, visually, he's a really good storyteller. The, with a lot of his direction, um, it's, it's very, very good, but maybe he should leave the uh, script writing to somebody else next time because, really, that's where I felt like a lot of this film was lacking. Yeah, I I did not know what to s- expect going in from the trailer uh, because it, I mean, as far as spoiler-free segments go, it's timely. Uh, it, it does not give away any spoilers, so you could rest assured you have no idea what's going to happen in this movie if you haven't seen it yet. No, that's absolutely true. You You sent me the trailer, I think, a week before we saw it. And you said, I think you sent me the link to the trailer, and all you said in that text besides that was, huh. And I watched it, and I was like, okay, yeah, this this could be good. And we, like, again, that's when we did, like, a little bit more research. We wanted to go in kind of blind, like we do with as blind as we can with most of these movies. We do, a, a like, look behind the curtain with the exception of, like, some very big things like Marvel, like Spider-Man from last week. I think we do generally do a lot of the research about how the film was made after the fact. Um yeah. We, or at least I do, I tend to go in blind. I, I don't like to know anything about the, I mean, wh- what I know about the director, but not necessarily how they directed this film, inspiration, anything like that, until after I've already seen it. That way I don't let any of that impact, you know, my initial thoughts, because that's generally what tends to stick with you. Um, and so, yeah, you're absolutely right. That trailer, it, it, told you nothing about that story. I, to be honest, I watched the trailer. And I'm like, it looks interesting and it looks kind of cool. Cause again, visually it was very well done. Um, but had you asked me what the movie was about, even after watching that trailer, I would have had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I just think the set pieces, set pieces in this film were beautiful. It was very well shot, well chosen for a movie, especially this horror film, which was set in the daytime. And, uh, it had such a unique premise, and that's what made me want to watch it at first. Yeah, I mean, that that, that is an interesting point. Again, trying to skirt around spoiler shit. The majority of this film takes place in the daytime, which, I mean, stands to reason there. Uh, it, it takes place mostly in Sweden around the summer solstice, so, you know, the longest day of the year where there is very little nighttime at all. So, I mean, initially going in and... Um, thinking that this is a horror movie and it's like you know it takes place so far north of the equator like most horror films take place at night or in the dark or something and all of a sudden they're so far restricted like a week you know there's what four hours of nighttime well maybe that'll make for an interesting premise and they just ignored that completely and they made i i guess you could sort of call it a horror movie um in the daytime and one other thing I'll say about the movie as far as that goes is it, it tries really hard. It commits to 
itself a lot and what it wants to do and say and and to the set pieces uh, and, and I think it does that well in, in a sense especially there is darkness in this film at certain points but I mm -hmm. think it's well used and it's it's infrequent which is an advantage because it I think it could have done a little bit more with it because it usually just skirted away from the dark but because of that, it was untraditional, and, and you really weren't sure where it was going at some points, and that kept, that left a sense of unpredictability. You weren't sure if it was going to be a jump scare or if it was just going to be this tensiony element to the movie, as far as as far as where it was going, or like where the where the horror was actually horror in quotes was going to come from. Yeah, it, it generated it allowed it allowed the horror to generate from some unique places because of its use of light. Yeah, absolutely. The, to me, again, one of the real problems that I have is that I felt like they were trying to do too much with this movie. Like, they tried to touch on a lot of very interesting and serious topics, um, but they were all really superficial examinations, like the, the grief over the loss of loved ones, mental illness or instability being in emotionally distant relationships, and a lot of this we will get more into in the spoiler portion, um, but it, a very large part was also being an outsider in another person or group's culture or looking at somebody else's culture from the outside and um, how different that is. And to probably a very small degree, prescription drug abuse is something that they touch on as well. I mean, it was really a single shot, but you could argue that that sort of affected the whole um, film. I mean, beyond just that, some of the issues that I had was there were various characters that truly just sort of felt unnecessary and there were various scenes and conflicts that didn't feel super necessary either that almost detracted from the, the main conflict, I guess, which was also sort of hard to nail down what the real conflict in this film was. Yeah, some characters had unnecessary positions to fill. But one character I did like was William Jackson Harper. I just like him as an actor. I loved him in The Good Place. And I don't know how it happened, but he is now typecast as a humanities scholar. Yeah, yeah, it seems like it. He always typecast as a humanities scholar. It's not something that I would have picked up, but you... <laughs> you're very right. I think with that... We are going to start to move on into the spoiler portion. So if you haven't seen the film yet, you can go ahead and stop the podcast now and go watch it if you want. The thing that I want to say before we move on, though, for anybody that's thinking about going to watch it, is you need to be aware that this is an incredibly graphic film that includes, but is not limited to, blood and gore, uh, depictions uh, of the act of and aftermath of suicide, uh, extended full frontal nudity, both male and female, sexual acts, uh, the insinuated ingestion of body fluids. I mean, I'm sure there's more, um, and that's just scratching the surface. It's a very R-rated movie. We'll say that. I'm actually, to be totally honest, having watched it, I'm I'm kind of amazed that it sort of skirted that NC-17 rating. Like, I feel like... I, like, I'm to be honest, I don't think I've ever seen an NC-17 film, but so I don't necessarily know specifically where that line lies maybe that's an industry talk for another time but this felt for a for an r-rated film this felt like 
a lot. I mean, I, I saw it with my girlfriend and we were talking, having the same discussion and she said, yeah, this movie, it's way different than dropping a couple F-bombs. Like, this, this is much more graphic in a whole host of ways. So again, if you're thinking about going to see it so that you can join us in the spoiler portion, please just bear that in mind. Um, if you're not about any of that, that's fine. You don't. You can either listen to the spoiler portion and not feel like you're missing anything about the movie, or you can join us next week, in which case we'll see you later. But if you do want to go see it, maybe pause right now. Well, we'll first we should give them our scores, though, so they can use that to vet their purchase. Oh, that's that's a good point. How are we going to weight them, though? Who, who's as weighted heavier? I, I think I, as the main host, gets twice the weight of you. Oh, gotcha. Okay. All right, so then what would you give it, Jacob? I, as usual, I waffled between a few few scores, and this movie was particularly challenging to score, but I think I'm going to have to give it a three and a half. Out of ten. Three and a half out of ten. It is oh, wow. a low score, uh, and... You'll see why I gave it that in in a couple minutes. So if you like the movie, don't hate on me because I do say some good things too. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm very close to you. I think I have to give it. I I to sort of waffle between a couple of scores. Um, I tend to be a little harsh. I think I think my score could maybe go higher, but I think I'm gonna sit finally at a four. Uh, again, there's a lot of good things that I have to say about the movie again especially in terms of direction and cinematography but a lot of other things just drag the rest of it down for me and and there are things that I can't really can't really reconcile with with all the good that the film did have so with that in mind what what's that an average of about well I guess since yours holds more it's what like a 3.6 or something if yours holds more weight yeah, around a three point, we'll say three point seven average. We'll round <laughs> sure, <up>. sounds fair. <laughs> All right. So with that in mind, um, if anybody hasn't seen the film yet, but you do want to go see it to join us in the spoiler part of the podcast, go ahead and take this time to pause. We live on the internet, so you can pick back up with us anytime and join us right after you've seen the movie, and we'll see if your discussion points line up with ours. Okay, Jacob. So. There's a lot, <laughs> like we mentioned earlier. There's a <laughs> lot to dive into. Um, I think I'm just gonna start at the beginning, and right from the beginning, it sort of seemed all over the place. Which, I mean, again, you could make the argument that the storytelling is meant to reflect Danny, our main character's um, mental state. I guess she she seems a little bit all over the place. She clearly has anxiety or depression as is made as is evidenced by the fact that in one of the opening scenes we see her popping out of van pills. Um mm-hmm. but I mean she's clearly got a lot of things going on all at once and we're seeing all of them all at once. She's concerned for her parents and her sister because of the this weird cryptic email that her sister sent. She's worried about her emotionally distant uh boyfriend and it like in the movie, it seems like she doesn't have a lot of friends because the one friend that she's talking to complaining about her relationship with Christian with is just someone on the phone who's never mentioned by name and who is literally never referenced again in the movie. Uh, With that in mind, that opening scene uh, or first couple of scenes 
uh, Esther does actually do a pretty good job of creating suspense as to what's happening at her parents' house. Because as I recall, there's, I mean, so there's like that opening panel, like that storybook looking picture, and then shots of, again, what I think is probably Sweden or meant to be Sweden. And then it cuts to her parents' house, which everything is seemingly normal, um, except that the phone is ringing and, you know, her parents are just seemingly asleep in bed. Um, And so the suspense is really created in what she's saying on the phone, um, especially when she references the email specifically. But moving a little bit past that, I mean, there's a lot of various disturbing scenes in in this movie, but I think think probably the most disturbing image in the entire film for me was the the image of her sister with the tube duct taped to her mouth which like I don't know why I mean there was a lot of death and gore and various destruction in this movie and like we don't even see somebody die here it's just the aftermath of suicide and somehow that's almost worse and I mean like you hear about people committing suicide with carbon monoxide poisoning but somehow the visual of her glassed over eyes and the duct tape on her mouth it's like that is the image i think that will probably stick with me from this movie forever yeah and she had that like just those dark veiny like it was her it was a very haunting image and they they leaned into that one or two more times throughout the film yeah which honestly i sort of take issue with here because there's the scene at the rocks right after the elders jump off and sacrifice themselves where Danny has this hallucination where she sees her sister. And I take issue with that because she wasn't there. I can't imagine that anybody sent her a picture. I can't imagine that anybody in their right mind would have said, oh yeah, your sister killed herself with carbon monoxide poisoning, and here's exactly how she did it. She duct taped a tube to her mouth. There's no way that she had any of that information. So it's it's really weird to me. Like It just felt like that was an excuse to show that again disturbing image on screen and unsettled the audience more but it didn't make any sense in context and it didn't move the plot forward i mean like i i get it i guess because she's she's reconciling what she just saw with what's in her own life but i don't know they just they leaned into that image a little too heavily there and it it just felt like it was only for shock value yeah, I think they realized they had something truly creepy there and and wanted to stick with that, but it, it did not make a ton of logical sense as far as the plot goes for it to be. And I this could be wrong. I, I don't remember, but I feel like one of the times it was her that was with the monoxide, like Danny herself was projected inside of that. But, oh, I don't know. I didn't notice. I mean, the other thing about this film is that there's a lot of there's a lot of foreshadowing or little tiny details. Again, the the thing that I feel like Aster does very well is, again, the, the set pieces are done really well, and there's a lot of minute details that you might miss. So that could absolutely be true, and I just didn't happen to notice that because, again, he, he does a lot with the, the little tiny details, which is very cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's there are some tiny details. I think... Sometimes he comes on a little too strong for me. Like his foreshadowing elements are are really almost five shadowing, for lack of a better term. Yeah. For instance, when Pele was first introduced to Danny, and he said, "Oh, I am so happy for you to be joining us." I was yeah. like, "He's a he's a bad guy. Like they're all gonna die." <laughs> like, oh yeah. Well, and I mean in 
beyond that, like he, for her birthday, he hands her a picture of her that he drew of her wearing a flower crown. I, again, it was very quick. And because it was earlier on in the film, I, I couldn't tell if it was, I thought it was her way wearing the May Queen crown, but I might be wrong. It might've just been one of the flower headdresses. I'm not sure. But again, that, that seemed like just very obvious foreshadowing to me that like they had already talked about the whole May Queen thing. And I'm like, oh yeah, so she's going to become May Queen. Like, obviously that is literally what that tells us. The one, well, the two actually cool little prophetic, <laughs> the two cool prophetic images I think in the movie were, again, that opening illustration. Like, I don't particularly feel like I want or need to see this movie again. But I do want to see a screen grab of that. I don't know if you know the thing I'm talking about. It looks like a Brothers Grimm kind of illustration or something right at the beginning that sort of peels back like uh, like curtains for a show. Um, yeah. But it's interesting because I think the entire like uh, movie or at least like the whole sacrifice thing that they do, which I'll get into later, um, is right there. It's kind of laid out in pictures in front of you like, hey, idiot, here's what's going to happen. So that was kind of cool. And additionally, like, I I only happened to notice this because I was looking because I saw some weird joke that I didn't understand on Twitter about get your own midsummer bear. And it's like a little plastic bear. Um, and so at the beginning, when Danny's sitting on her bed and Christian's, you know, very half-heartedly trying to comfort her, there is a very large painting above her of a little girl with blonde hair and a crown covering most of her face that's petting a big bear on the nose. And I'm like, okay, that's like, I don't know exactly what that means, but that's some kind of foreshadowing. And again, it's foreshadowing really for the uh, for the climax conclusion of the film where she's May Queen and she sacrifices Christian, which again is interesting and cool. And it's those minor details where I think this film really shines, but the overarching plot is where it falls apart. And unfortunately your minor details can never be good enough to make up for your main plot not being that great yeah i just don't even know what the film was it was it even the genre was it a horror yeah we we've already had trouble classifying it as that a thriller it was really too slow and boring for that at times it i almost if i had to classify a genre i'd say it was a film festival like movie that's that's its genre yeah, it's like, I, I would agree, it's a weird art house film, really, that, that draws a lot from horror. But yeah, I, I would agree, it's not, it's it's certainly not a traditional horror, and I know that we're probably going to get reamed and somebody's going to be like, it's, it's a psychological horror film, and I'm going to have to vehemently disagree with that. I don't think that it's a psychological horror at all. Like, I think Shutter Island is much more of a psychological horror where that comes into the idea of like, really delving into one's psyche and what is real and what is not or or at least that's that's more psychological horror to me like a one flew over the cuckoo's nest kind of vibe i mean i it's they all there was a lot of press around you know ari aster breaking genres and i mean to his credit that's probably true i would say that this is fairly genre breaking because i don't know where to put it but that's not always a good thing. Yeah, I don't know if it's like genre breaking because it's so revolutionary. I think it's genre breaking because it doesn't have a, uh, an identity per se. Um, yeah, for sure. 
so it, that that was hard and i left the theater i i'm sure you remember i sent you one picture and yep. this is it was a, of a chemical eye wash station i that's how i felt i just wanted this movie gone from from my memory not and you know you could argue that that's what he wanted to go for this disturbing film but it wasn't even that it was disturbing per se i mean some scenes were like the sex scene which we'll talk about later but it, it almost seemed like it was trying too hard to to live up to this quote-unquote disturbing identity and it it just didn't come off that way it, it was just a like I said in the non-spoiler review it, it tried so hard to do some things and for some in some instances it landed and in some other times it just came off as to me is desperate to be different, to be artsy. Um, yeah, and, and so, even so, it's still... I don't know. I feel like there were still a lot of those. Because it's weird, because I would agree. It tried really hard to sort of be genre-breaking and art housey, but it still hit a lot of those major beats that you know horror films do. Group of friends in their young teens or or uh, sorry, late teens or early 20s, going kind of out into the middle of nowhere, participating in something that they're not super familiar with, at least, and again, at least one of them being of some sort of ethnicity other than than white. And and all of the characters just feel, it's similar to most other generic horror movies, just feel like caricatures of people. Like Mark was just the prototypical uh, male American abroad, you know, talking down about the culture that he sees around being super ignorant of it. For example, like when he peed on the the spiritual tree, um, he seemed only interested in, interested in the women and the sex and the touristy stuff. And like he was really upset that they weren't going to like the party city at the beginning of the trip. He is that product. Uh, it, it felt like they leaned into that really hard too, where like he brought a vape with him everywhere and in all almost every scene that he's in i think he takes a hit of the vape which seemed like they were trying to make it very front and center which again i understand that being a a focus of the film and a point of the film but it felt like it was it was really shoved down our throat um josh on the other hand was sort of meant to be a warning about trying to study or learn about something either for personal gain and you know without having respect towards it like how he was constantly taking pictures of the the dancing and the various rituals that they had, um, even though it wasn't typically allowed. And in particular, when he asks their, I don't, I don't know what you'd call it, their religious leader, I guess, if you can take a picture of the uh, sacred texts and the religious leader is like shocked and he's like, no, that'd be abhorrent. Like, why would we let you do that? And Josh is like, well, I mean, you know, like, okay, sure. And then he disrespects it and goes in and um, takes the picture and, and gets killed or at least beaten there and, you know, it's again that sort of come up in story and and the idea of curiosity killed the cat. I think kind of, but again, it seemed very, you know, superficial to me. And and even when he was wishing to publish these results, even though he'd been previously told that he wasn't allowed to, um, Christian was a prime example of again in in a lot of either uh, horror films or j- just a lot of films in general, the emotionally distant significant other. I mean, like, he certainly wasn't a good guy, and that came across very clearly on screen in a a whole host of ways. But there were moments where it really felt like they were pushing that on us, the birthday scene in particular, 
which I, I have to admit was an odd dichotomy because that was one of the few pieces of writing um, that felt like it was kind of realistic. Like any time that Christian and Danny were fighting, that that felt awkward to me, but awkward in a, in a real sense, like that this is how people would argue and this does feel like a real argument and it made me uncomfortable because I'm sure anybody that's been in a relationship where you've argued with somebody, it probably makes you feel uncomfortable because you've had arguments very similar to the ones that they're having. So I think that is where he was really well... Uh, I think that was really where he was able to lean into having just been going through a breakup and he could pull on a lot of that experience. And I think he did that very well um, in those scenes. Um, but even so, the birthday scene like felt very forced and just joined into the plot of the movie, which again brings into question to me, like, what was the plot of this movie? What was the conflict of this movie? He said it was a breakup film, but conflict is really... Conflict in a film or in literature is about what happens to the characters, right? And at some point, the fact that they're in an emotionally distant and not good relationship takes a back burner to the fact that the, their friends and the people that they've come to meet that are also outsiders are being killed and they're watching people in this culture kill themselves. Like, that is the conflict. Like, it is no longer a breakup film at that point. The characters themselves staying there, they were just... To me, they were all idiots. I, I hated pretty much every single one of them. Yeah, and, and sorry to cut characters. in on you to cut in on you for one quick second. That that was another point that I, I forgot to make. Thank you for reminding me. The, again, they just had straight horror movie logic, right? Where again, something weird's happening, but we're gonna stick around. It, it was another huge horror movie trip that they leaned into. Yeah, even after hearing the girl who was obviously what was her name, uh, the Con- Connie. The, Connie, yeah. Obviously her screaming in the background. Three screams, and there's like, oh, it must be nothing. Well, and, and another weird thing about that is, so she goes running off and gets caught in the woods or whatever, I think. And they're at dinner, and someone asks, I think Danny asks if they'd seen Connie, and Mark goes, oh yeah, it looked like she was trying to set a world record for sprinting. I saw her running off into the woods. And this dude leans up and goes, um, I'm sorry. Actually, no, that didn't happen at all. You didn't see that because I know because I picked her up and I took her in our van up to the train station to to meet with Simon, her fiance. It would have taken Mark like nothing to just look at that dude and look back at his friends and be like, no, you're lying. I saw her run off into the woods. I know that you didn't do that. But he didn't. He just lets it go. Yeah, lets it go. They gave just stupid reasons for these characters not to investigate. Danny very weakly tried to say, like, have you seen these people? No, because they're super dead, and you should have known that. And you heard them scream, too. She lost all of her inquisitive mindset, like, when it would have started making sense for her. Because she would have figured it out, so she had to be dumb again. They made her too smart for a little bit. I mean, for, for... Christian to not care about Josh because they were going to write their thesis on the same topic. It became abundantly clear to me that Ari Esther has never, ever been near a graduate school once in his life <laughs> because there's just so many problems with, with you can write your thesis on the same thing and they weren't even going to write it on the same thing. It was going to be separate topics, but your thesis isn't constrained. It's about your independent contribution to this field. And and so that could be, you could have 10 people do the same tribe and get 10 different results. And I, I think they would actually 
highly appreciate that many ethnographies. But also, I think it was Pelle mentioned that it wouldn't be published that he it was one of his reasons for saying, oh, you can't really you know, write, write your thesis on us because even if you did, it, it wouldn't get published if the names were redacted. And that was just abundant, categorically false. It would not get published if the names were there. It's 100% about anonymity of the culture, of the people. They always put in, I mean, they would have to strip down the data they did collect with no identifiers even for that to be publishable because it's all about preserving that. So I, I just thought it really irked me that there was these just wronging it up about this higher education and, and especially how that drove the conflict between two characters because Christian's like, oh yeah, now Josh is out of the picture because we had this argument about our thesis that shouldn't have existed in the first place. Yeah, and I mean, I, there were a lot of moments where it felt like little conflicts were meant to, I don't know, again, shove down the throat to make characters look a certain way like again when the sacred texts were stolen and christian says like oh yeah no i know i'm sure it was josh and you know i just want you to know that i would never call us friends and we wouldn't associate with him at all i'm I'm like we barely knew him before getting here which again was just very clearly a way to be like oh yeah but he's a bad guy which again i'm not saying that a person wouldn't act like this or that it wasn't necessarily out of character although it did that felt a little bit weird from the character that we met at the very, very beginning of the film, who I felt like was just a tired, disjointed, if emotionally distant from his girlfriend, uh, graduate student, to just this complete ass, kind of, the way that he's acting towards Danny and, at, at that point, all of his friends. It did feel like kind of a heavy shift, uh, and, and another example of things or characters existing only as dichotomies to other thing is Connie and Simon. They only existed, I feel like, to for that single moment where they mentioned that they were engaged after only dating for, what, like a year and a half? And that was meant to further the narrative of the lovelessness and sparring relationship of Danny and Christian, which is fine, and like you can totally do that, but it felt like a very obvious way to do it, where the easier way is that you like you don't have to explain it it's being showed on screen like I felt like the again we we spoke last week about how chemistry doesn't always have to be characters or actors interacting well on screen I thought the chemistry for the dynamic that Danny and Christian had on screen came across very well between um Pew and Rayner it it was very clear from the way that they were acting around each other like this relationship isn't working and we're not really happy and I don't even know the last time that I've been happy. They didn't need that scene or the foils of Connie and Simon to make that clear. Yeah, they didn't need that. And they could have had just as easily had it be seven sacrifices and, and they didn't need to be yeah. present. Yeah, that that was the, the weird thing to me is that they needed them for that one scene and then just decided, well, I guess we'll make it nine sacrifices, which to to that end, what do they do if somebody does escape then, right? Like... If you only bring in... Okay, here's the other weird thing to me. So, unless there was some weird prophetic thing where they knew that Danny was going to be May Queen, that means that they had one extra outsider, right? And if you're bringing in outsiders, there's no way that all of them are going to be down to just join your cult afterwards. So, you just do you just kill them anyway? Just not sacrificial? You're like, ah, we'll just kill them so that they can't tell anybody about this. Like, the logic there makes zero sense to me. 
it, it makes no sense and it holds up to no scrutiny which wouldn't be so big of a deal but it, the film took itself so very seriously and it and it wanted to be so self-important so it makes the plot that much more important to be to hold up to scrutiny to make sense and you know you're never going to have this perfect you're always going to have to suspend your disbelief in some way but literally my my disbelief was in an airplane the entire movie with with how the characters were were behaving i mean even the fact that danny was may queen i mean first of all even when she met pele and he said this was our may queen and he said we're very happy you're i'm very happy you're joining i'm like so they're gonna die and she's gonna be may queen but i thought the may queen was the one who was gonna get sacrificed so so did i uh, yeah so I, I i did get that guess wrong they they led you on a little bit of a, a goose chase but her for her to outdance this entire village this this city girl hopped up on antidepressants like that is not even remotely plausible believable it it just was nonsense that she outdanced everyone and, and i knew as soon as she started i was like well she's gonna be may queen i, I knew the whole movie but the yeah. way they made her be may queen they could have handled that so many different ways but they wanted a cool drug trip scene which really just felt uncomfortable because there there's so many close-ups of their faces and it was laughing, which by design was meant to be a little bit strange and show this cult. Yeah, I mean, I I was trying to figure out the whole time whether, like I said, it was by design that Danny becomes May Queen, like if there's some sort of prophecy or whatever that the May Queen has to be an outsider every time or something and so these other girls from this cult or village or whatever you want to call it were intentionally taking the fall which again seems like seems like something that they can easily retcon in and say like oh yeah absolutely like Pele knew that she was going to be May Queen and that's why he for some reason doesn't get sacrificed even though his brother who also brought people to sacrifice does and that's the whole thing like oh you brought people so you also get to be sacrificed but Pele's like no you're you're very like clear of mind so we're gonna you don't have to get sacrificed you get to stay alive which was very convenient um but I I don't know if the whole design the whole time was that Danny was supposed to be May Queen or what and if that was the case it was very obfuscated and not clear at all and and it was never even made clear at the end which like maybe that could have made more sense if it was like, oh yeah, you were going to be May Queen the whole time and we knew because of the ancient texts or whatever still would have been very like, oh, wow, convenient, explain it at the end, but almost more acceptable than, than what? Yeah, and I even read one theory that said that they knew she was going to be May Queen and so they made her sister kill herself and... Like, they made it look like a, a suicide kind of thing, a suicide murder on the sister's part. I, I don't know what validity that theory holds. I don't think they went that far in depth. But just the fact that that theory exists and a lot of people thought it could have held just showed how unclear this movie was. Yeah, and that theory, along with the very, very end to me, where Danny is like, crying as she's watching the fire and then like she sort of starts laughing and then smiling all of that screams very 
ninth grade creative writing project, very edgy, and if you don't like it, oh, you just don't get it, and I understand everything, and this is society kind of thing, which, like, in all of those, there is that grain of truth and that little gold nugget, but like you said, when it takes itself too seriously, again, very much like a kind of big-headed ninth grader, like we all sort of were, um, it it really loses any validity to me. Mm-hmm. So I also, well, also, like, can we all just agree that this Midsummer Festival doesn't play, take place every 90 years? Like, it can't. There are several color photos of the May Queens. Everybody also seems to have these rituals down pat, but no one there has it's, it's old enough to have ever been to another one and Pele literally says that people die or are killed at 72 so there's no way that the trend could continue every 90 years because like none of the people would have seen the previous one like they can't really know how it's supposed to work like I don't understand if that was just if it's supposed to be a lie that they tell outsiders to convince them to stay to be sacrifices or if if it was something that'll be like retconned or was intentionally left out, but either way, it just feels like really bad storytelling to me. Yeah, it it very clearly doesn't happen every ninety years, and if it does, and they have to, I mean, the I haven't heard any like post movie explanations from Aster yet. I haven't looked for too many, but there's nothing worse to me ever than a director, a writer, or anyone, after a movie comes out, after a TV show, after a book comes out, explaining some kind of thing that doesn't make sense with... If you, yeah, if you have to explain it in the behind the scenes, you didn't do a good job in the scenes. Yeah, it's beyond lazy writing. It's just, it's it's unattentive writing and now you're trying to cover ground and and usually they try to make it seem like oh this makes total sense because of this this and that and it just doesn't yeah so i i don't think these are things that could ever be resolved and you know some sometimes it's meant to be left open-ended for instance like a movie like inception where they intentionally wanted to be crazy but it it just wasn't that wasn't the vibe i got here it was just very it seemed like bad writing and it, it or poor storytelling. It just wasn't co. It, it wasn't clear who. For even the festival, like you said, this clearly takes place more than ninety years because they kill themselves if they reach seventy-two. There's no video documentation of these festivals, these rituals. So, I mean, yeah, you could say that they write them down, but. I mean, telephone is hard enough, let alone texts from 80 years ago. Yeah, and passing it down 90 years, that's like, what, two generations at least of passing it down? I don't know. I mean, there was, there's a whole lot of things like that. It was, this movie was an odd mix of Chekhov's gun and also like stories of convenience. Like, you, we saw the love potion story thing on the scroll, like a very obvious close up. And it's like, oh, okay, so somebody's going to do literally that which was real gross by the way um oh yeah so that was christian when he was he ate her pube yep did you notice his drink was miscolored i didn't immediate i noticed his drink but i thought everybody's was like that i didn't notice it immediately until it made it obvious so like that was just me not checking that again like that small attention to detail in terms of the cinematography was good 
Um, but yeah, was, I, I did happen to notice that it was darker and uh, the, the obvious implication. Blood? Oh yeah, no, it was the it was supposed a, to be her period. menstrual blood. Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. I, I, I had instantly thought that too. I was like, man, you don't drink your drink, because I very much did want to pay attention to those small details, knowing who he was going in, and and it, I, I guess little things like that I, I will give him credit for um uh, but, and sorry to cut you off i just wanted to confirm that you did see that and and had the same oh yeah i did additionally another Chekhov's gun thing was the bear like i didn't obviously realize necessarily what it was going to be used for but they made such a big deal about of it like is that a when simon goes something like is that a bear and pele's pele's brother whose name i can't remember just goes yeah it's a bear I was like, okay, so there's going to be something with that. And it wasn't, again, it was a weird thing because it wasn't touched for the entire movie until the bear was already dead. We don't even see them kill it. And suddenly Christian is shoved inside of it and then sent to burn. It was very weird, although very obvious foreshadowing, which, again, I guess is fine. But And, and I guess it was fine foreshadowing in that I never would have guessed that's what it was going to be used for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's... I- you just get it. You hear that, and you're like, "But, but, but, why?" It's like in the Beauty and the Beast, the, they're laying all these curses on him, and he's like, "And also, it's winter," and you're like, "Why would that be part of it?" It's like, "I'm gonna brutally murder you, but also you're gonna be inside of a bear," and you're like, "Okay, I guess." Yeah, and a lot of things were like, "And why is that part of it?" Like the whole thing being a ritual, which requires nine sacrifices which was literally never talked about as far as i can remember right until the end when they're like oh yeah by the way we needed nine sacrifices and we've got eight four to be outsiders four we're from the village and we get to pick a last one and you may queen you get to choose but also your boyfriend that we sort of made cheat on you and has been emotionally distant from you we blew some powder in his face that uh paralyzed him that we've also never talked about this entire movie and uh you know he's he's right there and the other person you get to choose with here here's the other issue that i had i mean this would have been very obvious but they do like the lottery thing you know very like shirley jackson or whatever where they pull somebody's name and it's that dude who we have no idea who that is we have no emotional connection to and i mean like it's again an interesting dichotomy because the real sophie's choice moment would have been they put the redheaded girl whose name i can't remember the one that's now probably pregnant with christian's child they put those two up, and so the Sophie's choice becomes, oh, which does she kill the boyfriend that she thinks cheated on her or the girl that he thinks or she thinks he cheated with? I mean, I guess maybe the idea was supposed to be, oh, yeah, it's this nobody character that means nothing to you as a viewer and means nothing to her as a person. And I was like, yeah, but she's already going insane, and that's very clear. Like, you don't have to prove that she's going even more insane by being like, oh, yeah, I'm going to pick my boyfriend, the person that I know, to be the one that dies at the end here. I think that was maybe supposed to be the point that this person whom she could sort of kill with impunity that she has no emotional attachment to. She chooses her, I guess now ex-boyfriend over, but I, again, very weird, just sort of convenient thing. Yeah. And they really leaned into him at the end too. And I was like, I, I literally don't even know who this is. That someone, the noble, I, I don't know. It was the weirdest thing. And I was like, I don't, I could not care any less. And because there's nine, you needed this. And again, it was probably by design to show how far down she had went. But it just didn't It didn't make any sense. And it would have been even more crazy had she chosen him over the girl. So, I mean, they could have just done so much more with that than 
random guy you've never once cared about and I will never, ever know the name of. Yeah. So we're starting to run a little long on time, but I know that you were just, you were begging to talk about this sex scene. So let's get into that really quickly. <sighs> um, so many uh, questions uh, after that scene and they're all what and why and also that's not how sex or really pregnancy works i mean the so yeah obviously a very bizarre scene that's one of the few things that i don't think they needed to show it in as graphic a scene as they did but it's one of the few things that they actually did explain a little bit when Josh is asking about how they keep the gene pool pure, kind of like, oh, well, we have to use outsiders every once in a while or whatever. Um, I, th- there's a lot of actually interesting little things about that scene. Uh, Ashley and I, having Ashley, my girlfriend, as a sounding board for some of these talking points is actually very useful after movies because she pointed out to me something that I hadn't even considered, which is that uh, the girl kind of closes her legs and leans back afterwards and says something to the effect of, oh, I can feel the baby inside me already. It's like, well, that's not how pregnancy works, but it's an interesting thought experiment of like, oh, well, these people have been kept here pretty much their entire lives, so they probably are very sheltered and they don't know how sex or reproduction or anything like that works. And the other interesting thing about that scene that I... I I hesitate to say like. I mean, it's it's an overarching like, or at least, if not a like, it was a point of interest to me, is the the kind of group think that this whole, I'm just going to start calling it a cult, that this whole whole cult had going. Um, I, I mean, you can see it kind of the, the whole movie, like at the beginning when Pele is trying to, it, it initially seems sweet where he's talking to Danny and he's like, no, I mean, like, I understand too, like, I lost my parents and he won't let her feel her own feelings at first seems like a nice gesture where it just seems like, you know, he's trying to connect with her and be like, no, I, I sort of understand too. And then as you watch the movie a little bit further on, I, I, to me, it started to feel like, oh, he's not allowed to feel anything by himself and he doesn't want anybody else to feel anything by himself because they, as a, as a collective feel things like when Danny is just screaming after she's seen Christian cheating on her and just, and, and the way that, again, down to that sex scene where all of the elder women are there too, like sort of experiencing it with them. It was weird. It was weird for sure, but it was an interesting, if graphic and bizarre way of showing that. Well, and as soon as that scene started happening, it's like, okay, this is the scene he wants to be known for, this movie to be known. He wants this to be that convention-breaking disturbing it's, the scene yeah it's, people it's the rosemary's about. baby scene yep and so it was happening and and, and i will admit it was done for, for that purpose exceptionally well i mean just the the uncomfortable and unnatural movements of the naked bodies in the background yeah like having the mom go down touch the daughter's head make christian look at her what was really infuriatingly upsetting to me is they tried to make Christian this bad guy the whole movie. I never really felt like he was that terrible of a person, and I felt like Danny was just as bad. Again, he was emotionally distant. There were times when he was certainly, I felt like, emotionally manipulative. But I, I think what you're getting at is the 
tweet that I sent you where there was a guy that said, oh man, Midsummer is going to be a real divisive movie. In the theater I was in, the couple in front of me just got up and the guy said, oh man, I don't think he deserved that at the end. And the girl goes, well, that's rich coming from you. Yeah, which classic tweet, classic roast. But I mean, he was a little distant and they tried to make it seem worse and worse as the movie went on. But there is also a, a, a psychological detriment to being too clingy and putting your par- partner in this position of therapist, of doing all these other things because they're a human too and they have their own responsibilities and their own problems to deal with. So for her to over-depend on him can also be problematic. She also kissed Pele, or he kissed her. She had no problems with that, no qualms with that outside of a little... Uh, odd look to the side well but they're Um, family now jacob (laughs) i just think and it was by definition christian was obvious 100 sexually assaulted he was drugged even if we willingly took a drug he could not consent to any activities under the duration of that drug's effect which was designed to make him susceptible to suggestion and to have him be brutally murdered, I mean, they should have not had him take the drug if they wanted him to be a bad guy. But instead, he gets brutally murdered after getting sexually assaulted, and that just did not sit well with me at all. It was very upsetting, and I think if anyone thinks he deserved that, they need to see a therapist. That is not the one that Danny was seeing in the movie. Yeah, I mean, again, it's if it's a breakup movie, which if you want to try and argue that, sure, but it's a breakup movie... I think not because one either of them were necessarily horrible human beings. Although, again, I can see that narrative. They certainly tried to push that narrative on Christian throughout the movie. And he, he certainly gets worse and worse as the movie goes on. He becomes more and more of a bad guy. But generally speaking, that's just they were in a toxic relationship on a whole for a whole host of reasons and on both sides. And I mean, really, th- that was the problem. Um with them and the comment i had seen that i had liked was the antagonist isn't always the bad guy and that's how i felt in this movie was danny was the protagonist he was the antagonist but he wasn't necessarily evil and she wasn't necessarily good that was the Um, thing is like yeah i wouldn't even I, i guess you'd call her the protagonist i don't know if i'd even go so far as to call her the protagonist so much as the main character like yeah. there wasn't I, I didn't feel like there was a protagonist of this movie, which I mean, I guess is, again, fairly to some sort of slashery horror movies. There's not necessarily a protagonist because everyone dies in the end or whatever. But all right, we're running a little bit long on time. There are a couple things that I want to talk about, because, again, it seems like we're just really reaming this movie. But there were, again, some very um, interesting things with it. Like I said, the commentary on kind of cults was interesting. Um, how they had this inter- like this groupthink kind of mentality, and uh, how they like take in people who are vulnerable for one reason or another, particularly youth, like exactly what they did with Danny, which again sort of lends some credence to the theory that you read online. Although that still seems fairly far fetched to me that they orchestrated her family's death. Like that's just way too out there. There's no way that they could have ever done that. I mean, and a, a lot of the film felt very bizarre and out of the ordinary, um, which I think is meant to reflect on how the characters feel. And it's designed to speak to the fact that we're so used to our own cultures and our strange, what would seem like strange rituals to outsiders are so commonplace to us that we ignore them. So 
the rituals that the they do in this uh, little village seem so foreign and disgusting to us, but it's it's obviously a hyperbole, but I think it's meant to say like you know don't judge somebody else based upon their culture or what what they do. Um, the drug trip stuff was overdone, but it, it it was interesting visually how they would sort of let you know that somebody was in a drug trip, like the breathing flower on Danny when she had the flower crown, the kind of hazy background, just something in every shot where somebody was like on some sort of drug trip. There was something that wasn't, that was very clearly not grounded to reality, which sort of helped you to know that they were in that, which was kind of cool, even though they kind of bounced between being on drugs and not being on drugs seemingly randomly. But again, I, I thought that that in terms of visuals and and that as a way of visual storytelling um, was very well done. And they showed, so for instance, after Christian was done having coitus, um, he was very clearly upset and ha- had been out of the drug trip, and, and I think he acted that part pretty well. He did, and it's, it's to again, speaking to something kind of cool and interesting, that was actually Jack Rayner who had the idea for his full frontal nudity scene where he like runs across the compound a little bit. And his idea, which was interesting, um, was he sort of like, there's so many horror films where women are like in the shower or somehow end up naked or topless and, you know, they're running from for their life, screaming from some like unknown killer or whatever. And he's like, let's turn that on its head where like suddenly, like you said, he's just been assaulted. He's in a place. He doesn't know if his some of the people he's with are alive. He doesn't understand what's going on. Um, either what just immediately happened or overarchingly what happened. And so, like, let's make him as vulnerable as can be down to the point where, like, he doesn't have clothes on even. Was that scene, strictly speaking, necessary? No. Having had that explained makes a lot of sense. And, like, it, that one doesn't even necessarily feel like a retcon to me. It's just, like, that was sort of the purpose, and I can definitely yeah. see that. I'm, I'm uh, fine with those types. Yeah, which which was interesting. I don't know if it was necessary, but, like, Having had it justified like that, I can absolutely, given that we'd already gotten a bunch of graphic nudity in the scene beforehand, that was an interesting way of um, using it, I think, to, again, tell a story, a deeper story. Mm-hmm. I don't know, Jacob, do you have anything uh, to wrap us up with before we head out, though? Yeah, final thoughts. I It sounds like I'm digging into it, because I am. Um, <laughs> I feel like Aster is, he, again, I, I mentioned this probably once or twice throughout, he does try very hard to be artsy, aesthetic, make a point about society. And I think a comparable director who also has two horror style, style films out there is Jordan Peele. But I think the difference out there is that Peele is actually a good director, which sounds savage. But I just think that he, he touches on, he foreshadows so discreetly and so brilliantly in his movies. Uh, he still has that artsy... Uh, aesthetic and some exceptional social commentary and and I feel like they're two of these smaller studio directors who have come up recently and and produce things uh, that critics and I guess audience tend to to be more receptive to Peel's work Um, all, all that to say is that you know I think Astor went downhill after Hereditary a little bit I feel like there was a promising start there, but you know the, this follow-up with Midsummer, there was a lot of potential. It just did not have 
to cohesion. Uh, there were some good things, some attention to detail, but it just was a movie that had too many problems for me to be enjoyable. It, it, it was a long movie that felt long, and that's hard for me because I, I sit through a lot of movies all the time, and you know I, I can watch a movie with Rebel Wilson and feel like it's not too long. <laughs> so... Um, you know, I just I, I was kind of disappointed in this movie because I really did think that it was going to be a good film based on critic reviews. And um, I think the audience is being a little bit more uh, their scores being much lower than the critics just speaks to what critics like self-importance and feeling like they're experiencing something deeper. Whereas audiences, I, I trust the audience scores more with this movie than the critics. Yeah, the only thing that I would maybe amend on what you said is that I think Peel is probably at present the better director, but I, I don't think that Astor's a bad director. I would say that Peel is a much, much better writer in this case. I think that in terms of direction and cinematography and again, visual storytelling, they both do incredibly, incredibly good jobs. The difference generally is that Peel's writing is, like you said, much more cohesive, much more interesting and i think that's where astor sort of falls short so i'd love to see more of his work but again maybe letting somebody else pick up the pen and he can just pick up the camera yeah i will be interested to see astor's follow-up to this um you know hereditary was was a very modest success it had a 10 million dollar budget 80 million dollars at the box office this one's still making a decent profit but it's much smaller than that from hereditary so you know, maybe that'll show him that his story got a little bit too convoluted. Um, but again, like you said, he does have some very good shots, some good set pieces. So, you know, I will be watching his next movie when it comes out, but I will have different expectations. Yeah, absolutely. So, Jacob, if somebody wants to let you know how you're completely wrong and how this was the, the best film, not only of the year, but probably of this decade, where can they reach you? <laughs> Uh, they can reach me at my Twitter handle at Jacob J Coots, the letter J C O U T T S. Feel free to DM me. Uh, let me know how wrong I was because I do know there are some strong positive opinions of this film, uh, and, and I'm sure I could be uh, talked out of some of my negativity. Yeah, and if you want to let me know how I was wrong or all of the things that I missed in this, and I'm sure there were plenty. You can uh, hit me up at PWG Grant. That is P-W-G-G-R-A-N-T. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, you can also email us at 35millimeterpod at gmail.com. That's 35mmpod at gmail.com. That can either be about the film or about industry talk. We know that the industry talk segments can get a little bit dense sometime. Somewhere down the line, we want to answer any questions that you guys might have about the industry talk segments. We'll probably do a roundup um, after a couple of months just getting uh, questions from the audience. But until next time, thank you guys so much for joining us, and we will see you all next week. 35mm Perspective is a Players with Game production. All opinions within the podcast are our own. Michael Campos is our composer. All rights reserved. Bye. Uh-huh.